You're listening to TGTM News number 93, recorded for Tuesday, April the 2nd, 2013. You're listening to the tech-only Hacker Public Radio edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek Talk Geek to Me. This is Dan Washko, and now the Tech Roundup. From democracynow.org, dated March 26th, NATO researchers, U.S.-Israeli cyber attack on Iran was illegal act of force. A new study commissioned by NATO says the joint U.S.-Israeli cyber attack launched on Iran's nuclear facilities was an act of force that likely violated international law. A group of 20 international researchers reportedly agreed unanimously that the launch of the cyberworm Stuxnet several years ago constituted an act of force, which is prohibited under the United Nations Charter except in cases of self-defense. Some even thought the worm constituted an armed attack, which would mark the start of a conflict and entitle Iran to use force to defend itself. From TechDirt.com by Mike Masnick, dated March 25th. Rather than fix the CFAA, House Judiciary Committee planning to make it worse. Way worse. So you know all that talk about things like Aaron's Law and how Congress needs to fix the CFAA? Apparently, the House Judiciary Committee has decided to raise a giant middle finger to folks who are concerned about abuses of the CFAA. Over the weekend, they began circulating a draft of a cybersecurity bill that is so bad that it almost feels like the Judiciary Committee is doing it on purpose as a dig at online activists who have fought back against things like SOPA, CISPA, and the CFAA. Rather than fix the CFAA, it expands it. Rather than rein in the worst parts of the bill, it makes them worse. And from what we've heard, the goal is to try to push this through quickly, with a big effort underway for a cyber week in the middle of April that will force through a bunch of related bills. Let's go through some of the pieces. Adds computer crimes as a form of racketeering. The bill adds to the current definition of racketeering activity so that it would now link back to the CFAA, such that if you are found to violate the CFAA as part of an activity that involves a variety of other crimes, you can now also be charged with racketeering. Basically, this just gives the DOJ yet another tool to use against computer criminals when they want to bring the hammer down on someone they don't like. Not only could you be charged with computer fraud, but now racketeering as well, because you know, all you hackers are just like the mob. Expanding the ways in which you could be guilty of the CFAA, including making you just as guilty if you plan to violate the CFAA than if you actually did so. Section 103 of the proposed bill makes a bunch of changes to the CFAA, almost all of which expand the CFAA rather than limit it. For example, they make a small change to the subsection B in 18 United States Code 1030, the CFAA, such that it will now read, Whoever conspires to commit or attempts to commit an offense under subsection A of this section shall be punished as provided for the completed offense in subsection C of this section. All they did was add the for the completed offense to the sentence. That may seem like a minor change at first, but it would now mean that they can may claim that anyone who talked about doing something, conspire to commit, 
that violates the CFAA shall now be punished the same as if they had completed the offense. And, considering just how broad the CFAA is, think how ridiculous that might become. Now, if you talk with others about the possibility of violating a terms of service, say talking to your 12-year-old about helping them sign up for Facebook, even though the site requires you to be 13, you may have already committed a felony that can get you years in jail. That seems fair, right? Ratchets up many of the punishments. They change around a bunch of the penalties that you can get for various CFAA infractions, shaking up a variety of things and basically raising the maximum sentences available for certain infractions, expanding the definition of exceeding authorized access in a very dangerous way. That's because the new bill says that you can exceed authorized access even if the accessor may be entitled to obtain or alter the same information in the computer for other purposes. Yes, read that again. Quote, even if the accessor may be entitled to obtain or alter the same information in the computer for other purposes. Even if you are allowed to obtain info via your authorization on your computer, they're now saying that if you use that information in a way that runs afoul of the info above, you can be found to have exceeded authorized access. Make it easier for the federal government to seize and forfeit anything. We've seen how the federal seizure and forfeiture laws are frequently abused to seize goods, which the government claims are used in commission of a crime, even if they never charge anyone for the crime. And we've seen with cases like and we've seen with cases like the Jazzle case how the government will use such tools to take and censor websites on no actual basis. And now the CFAA will make it even easier for the government to do such things. It amends the existing sections to basically expand what can be forfeited, because it's not like the government hasn't abused that one before. The rest of the bill deals with two other things. First, the section on cybersecurity, which includes punishment for those damaging critical infrastructure computers. Another section that tells the courts to figure out how to secure their computers are. And finally, a part that creates a National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force to be led by the FBI. Rather than fixing the law, they're expanding it so that computer crimes can be hit with racketeering charges and expanding the general language and punishments for part of the bill. This is not a good thing. The fact that this is being passed around the House Judiciary Committee suggests that it's likely to be backed by HJC Chair Bob Goldlate, which is unfortunate. You would have hoped that Goldlate and others in the HJC would recognize that now is the time to fix the CFAA, not make it worse. From TorrentFreak.com, dated March 26th by Ernesto, BitTorrent's Brom Cohen patents revolutionary live streaming protocol. Earlier this month, BitTorrent Live was unveiled to the public. The new protocol allows the public to send a video stream to millions of people without having to invest in expensive bandwidth. Around the same time as BitTorrent Live was launched, the underlying patent application was published online. In it, Cohen describes what makes the technology so unique, and Torrent Freak caught up with BitTorrent's creator to find out more. Quote, doing live streaming well on the internet has long been a problem. Peer-to-peer -peer live streaming has always suffered from high latency, meaning there is typically a lot of delay between when a broadcast happens and when end users see it, typically dozens of seconds or minutes, end quote, Cohen told Torrent Freak. Quote, BitTorrent Live allows a broadcaster to stream to millions of people with just a few seconds of latency. This is new and unique and potentially world-changing, end quote, he adds. 
Brom Cohen explains that the patent is in no way going to restrict users' access to the new protocol. Quite the contrary. BitTorrent Live will be available to end users for free, and publishers who are using the service and hosting it on their own will not be charged either. BitTorrent Live is a complex technology, but basically works by dividing peers into various clubs of peers who share data among each other via UDP Screamer protocol. To get slightly more technical, the way BitTorrent Live works is by making subsets of peers responsible for subsets of data. High robustness and low latency is achieved by using a Screamer protocol between those peers, Cohen explains. For the last hop, it uses a non-Screamer protocol to regain congestion control and efficiency. There is redundancy and some waste in the screaming, but that's kept under control by only using it to get data to a small fraction of the peers. Brom Cohen believes that the future of television is on the internet, and BitTorrent Live can help deliver live high-definition content to millions of people at once at no cost. This is not just the future for independent broadcasters, but also for the major content companies. There are not many people who can change the fundamentals of the internet two times in a row. However, Brom Cohen already did it once with the original BitTorrent protocol, and he believes that BitTorrent Live can have a similar impact. To read the complete article, follow the article link in the show notes. From TechDirt.com by Mike Masnick, dated March 28th. Department of Justice misled judges for years about how it was using Stingray devices to spy on people. How many times does it need to be repeated? If you give law enforcement the ability to spy on people, even with limits, law enforcement will always blow through those limits and abuse its powers. It has happened over and over and over again, and that becomes doubly true when law enforcement has worked out ways to avoid oversight. Back in 2011, the Wall Street Journal broke a huge story about the frequent use of, by government officials of a technique for mobile device surveillance generically called Stingray devices. Technically, there are a few products used for this, only some of which are actually called Stingrays, but the name is now used to refer to all of them. The device works by pretending to be a mobile phone tower so devices can connect to it and law enforcement gets all your data. It's basically a cellular man-in-the-middle attack with law enforcement being the man in the middle. The technology has been a key component in the case involving Daniel Rigmaiden, which we wrote about last year. Rigmaiden was taken into custody on a fraud charge and re representing himself in court, he has sought more info on how he was tracked down leading to some reluctant disclosure about law enforcement using Stingray devices on questionable authority to find him. In that case, we noted that law enforcement claimed it had court order to use the technology, but the judge was confused, asking where were the warrants for the use of the device. The judge asked how it was possible that a court order or warrant was issued without the judge ever being told about the technology used in surveillance and was told simply it was a standard practice. Indeed, that appears to be the case. The ACLU filed a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests to dig into this, and newly released documents show that, indeed, it was apparently standard practice by the Department of Justice to be less than explicit and less than forthright with judges in seeking warrants and court orders to make use of this technology. Here's an email that was revealed. As some of you may be aware... Our office has been working closely with the magistrate judges in an effort to address their collective concerns regarding whether a pen register is sufficient to authorize the use of law enforcement's WIT technology, a box that simulates a cell tower and can be placed inside a van to help pinpoint an individual's location with some specificity, to locate an individual. It has recently come to my attention that many agents are still using WIT technology in the field, although the pen register application does not make that explicit. 
While we continue to work on long-term fix for this problem, it is important that we are consistent and forthright in our pen register requests to the magistrates. Basically, that's the Department of Justice admitting that it has not been forthright or explicit in letting judges know that it is going to use this extremely intrusive form of surveillance in seeking approvals. And the courts have been concerned about this. As the ACLU notes, this email was written three years after the rig maiden situation happened, suggesting that the Department of Justice has been getting away with this sort of thing for many years, without anyone digging in. The ACLU is now arguing that this should be a reason to suppress the evidence obtained via these devices, and will ask for the court to send a clear message that it cannot hide the truth from federal judges in seeking rubber stamps to violate the privacy of the public. From TechDirt.com by Mike Masnick, dated March 28th. Government can keep key emails with Hollywood lobbyists about six strikes secret. From the Can't Interfere With That Commercial Relationship Department. While we keep hearing folks in the entertainment industry and their supporters in D.C. talk about how great it is that the Six Strikes Copyright Alert System, CAS, was a voluntary agreement between industry players and one of the worst kept secrets in the world was that the White House was heavily involved. They basically helped Hollywood out and at least hinted strongly at the fact that if no voluntary agreement came through, legislation might have to be put in place, creating a novel definition of voluntary. Specifically, it came out that Victoria Espinel, the White House IP Enforcement Coordinator, IPAC, had been emailing with people about the program. That news came out because Chris Sohoyan had submitted a Freedom of Information Act request seeking details of all communications between Espinel and her staff and the various players in Six Strikes, both the entertainment industry and the various ISPs. However, Sohoyan felt that the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, in which Espinel works, kept key documents from being revealed and appealed. Following that, OMB released a few more documents, but still kept many secret. Sohoyan then went to court over the issue, arguing specifically that exemptions claimed for, quote, trade secrets, commercial or financial interests, end quote, and, quote, privileged intra-agency memoranda and letters, end quote, were inappropriate. Unfortunately, the court has now rejected that case, siding with OMB. At issue are some details of the draft Memorandum of Understanding that created the Six Strikes CAS program. Apparently, entertainment industry lobbyists shared those drafts with Espinel, but OMB won't release them, claiming that they're commercial, confidential information. OMB also argued that the documents were provided voluntarily and that the drafts were not compelled or obligated. In response, Sohien argued that the documents were clearly provided to OMB for the sake of having Espinel Quote, press ISPs for additional steps to combat copyright infringement, steps they are not legally obligated to take, end quote. The court rejects this, saying that the info was provided confidentially and voluntarily, and it represents commercial information, so they remain secret. The court also rejected an attempt to see internal discussions within the government about the Six Strikes Plan, as well as discussions on foreign laws like Hadopi Strikes, Six Strikes Plan in France. Espinel's office argued that these are protected because they are part of the deliberative process privilege that lets them withhold internal deliberative discussions about policy so that government employees can discuss stuff openly before coming to an official policy position. However, here Sohoyan argued that Espinel and the IPEC have almost no policy-setting role under the law, and thus this exemption makes little sense. Once again, the court disagreed. Here they argued that since the government may make policy decisions based on whether or not six strikes formed, or how well it works, that these communications were properly classified as privileged and not open the FOIA 
requests. The court goes into a bit more detail on a few specific withheld documents, but the conclusion is all the same. OMB can keep these documents secret because they involve internal deliberative discussions. This isn't too surprising, but it also means that we don't get to learn the full extent of the government's involvement in this voluntary process. Other headlines in the news? To read these stories, follow the links in the show notes. New Zealand gave Kim.com residency, knowing he was wanted by FBI. Websites can legally pirate porn movies, prosecutors rule. Staffed and produced by the TGTM news team, editorial selected by Deep Geek. Views of the story authors reflect their own opinions and not necessarily those of TGTM News. News from TechDirt.com, InTheseTimes.com, and AllGov.com used under arranged permission. News from RealityCheck.org used under terms of their republication policy. News from TorrentFreak.com is used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution license. News from Democracy Now! used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever consider recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.